Welcome to the MPC Podcast. I am Tim W. Gill, pastor of Medora Pentecostal Church, and I'm thrilled that you've joined us today. Here at MPC, we are committed to bringing hope and building lives. One way we do that is through this podcast. Thank you for listening, for sharing and reviewing what we do here. It is our desire to connect with you, and you can find us on Facebook, or you can find us at our website, medorachurch.com. It is our prayer that today's message inspires you, encourages you, and that the kingdom of God is advanced in your life. Let's get right to the word of the Lord today. Let's get our Bibles this evening. I'm directing your attention to the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, it is the letter, the message to Pergamos, as we will call Pergamum in this study. But the Bible says here, Jesus writing or saying to the angel, the pastor of the church of Pergamos, write these things. Saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Aren't you glad the Lord knows where you live? Even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed into idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing I hate. Repent, everybody say repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth. Amen. Would you just begin to lift up your voice right now to the Lord? Open up your hearts, I pray, to the word tonight. Lord Jesus, would you speak in us and through us, Lord? I pray, God, that your anointing would flow. Help us to unpack this as you would wish. Help us, Lord Jesus, to find things, oh God, here that would be uplifting and edifying instruction, Lord, and even correction. I pray in your mighty name. Use this word for your glory in Jesus' mighty name. Tonight it is Pergamum, reject compromise. That's the message. Reject compromise. Turn to three people and tell them, let's reject compromise. She could be seated. Consider with me for a moment living in a time when there was enormous pressure put on you to accept culture. 
Either you accept culture or you face great persecution and pressure. Consider with me for a moment living in a day when government is oppressive and demanding. Follow our rules or face consequences. Do what we say or face consequences. What if you lived in a period where the halls of academia demanded acceptance and their theory of silence as being the absolute truth and king? Think about this, living in a period of time where coexistence of religions and the bleed over of paganism is the norm. Worship whatever you want. Worship whatever you like, but not Jesus only. What about that culture? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to what you and I are facing in this hour? It's the case in Pergamum. Pergamum is an interesting city, um, it, and, and I use the word Pergamum as, as, as I've been studying and found that that is, the, I guess, the, the true pronunciation of it, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. It was one of the most beautiful cities in the ancient world. It goes way back to, way back to, way back, whack, way, way, way back. It is situated as the other churches in what is known as modern-day Turkey. Pergamum means height or elevation because the city sat on a, a high hill. Pergamum was not culturally significant or commercially significant as Ephesus or Smyrna was because Pergamum is not a coastal city. It's an inland city. It does have rivers around it, and it has major thoroughfares. It was like the crossroads of that day. The city, though, does have three major important areas in it, three major things that made Pergamum very important, religion, politics, and education. It was not a commercially significant city, but it was very prominent in its religion, its politics, and its education. You would find almost anything to worship in Pergamum that you wanted to. You would find any kind of temple. It was like the Mecca of messed up paganism. There was anything you wanted to worship. You pick your religion, you probably will find it there. There was a, a grand altar, a throne, if you please, to the god Zeus. The throne of Zeus, as it was called. As Zeus was worshipped, uh, uh, coming from the Greeks as being the king of gods. Zeus, king of kings, they would call him. Uh, they would offer up animal sacrifice to Zeus on this altar and then take the meat and go to the market uh, and sell it as just something that you are to eat, I guess. And, and this was a conflict for the church at Pergamum. Then if you don't like that, you could go to the temple of Demeter, the goddess of harvest, and sacrifice to her all that you can because if you sacrifice to Dementor, you will have good crops because she's the goddess of harvest. Worshippers believe that they would never go hungry if they worship Dementor and sacrifice to her. Then perhaps if you don't want that, you need some wisdom, then you could go to the temple of the goddess Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. 
And, and so she will help you. If you need help and know what to do, then you would go to the goddess of, of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And if that, that doesn't suit your fancy, then you could go to the, the god of uh, Dionysus, uh, uh, the god of wine and festivity. It was the god that if you want to go get drunk and have party and, and, and just seek pleasure, this is where you go. And I would imagine a lot of people didn't get what they needed from these other gods, so this is the god they wind up with to just, just drink their sorrows away. And that's not all. Augustus Caesar established the state religion of emperor worship, and, and Pergamon was chosen as the religious headquarters and the first temple built around 29 B.C. for Augustus. It is the worship of the state, brothers and sisters, that is the heart of the beast in Revelation 13, 12 through 15. The mark of the beast relates to the worship of a state religion. Amen. And so they created a state religion that this was what you were supposed to do. Pergamon was called the royal city of authority. It is also known as the city of temples. Go figure. If you didn't like something, then you would go worship at another place and, and you would choose another religion. And that was the very significance of, of Pergamon. The second thing is their politics. Pergamon was the capital of the providence of Asia for almost 250 years. It was known as the royal city. It was known as the city of authority. Rome uh, 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 was the central power of the eastern portion of the Roman Empire of that day. Pergamon was the, the western central power at that particular time. Pastor Drew Carsoner uh, said this. He said, if Ephesus was New York City of Asia, Pergamon was Washington, D.C. Pergamon. So when you think Pergamon, you think Washington, D.C. You think the swamp. You think the mess. You think the corruption. You think Georgetown and other major universities that are, are, are turning out lawyers just like the rest of them. Amen. Praise God. We find that it was a highly politicized community. It was a place, as one writer wrote, said, a place where all the main roads of Asia converged. Then thirdly, the thing that Pergamon is known for is for its education and its medicine. Education and medicine were grouped together. At the point of this time in history, Pergamon had a library that boasted over 200,000 volumes. Only Alexandra had a bigger library at that time. 200,000 volumes in that day is very significant. And, and, and you will find that Pergamon was known for its parchment, for it would, it, would, it would create parchment, and then they would write on that parchment, and then they would have their libraries, and they would have their books of philosophy, and they'd have their books of, of religion, and they had their books of, of, of medicine, and they had their books of this and that. Vincent, in his commentary, describes Pergamon as this, as a sort of a union of pagan cathedral city, a university town, 
and a royal residence, embellished during a succession of years by kings who all had passion for expenditure and ample means of qualifying. What is he saying? He said it is a, a government town and a university town, and it had a lot of money. Does that sound like Washington? Lord, I know this is going to get to somebody. And Mr. Vincent went on to say, the streams which embrace the town irrigate, ir, irrigated the groves uh, in which flourished the licentious pagan rites of immaturity and immorality, or immorality. He said, the sacred character of this city appears in coins and inscriptions which describe the Pergamons by the title claimed by the worshipers of Diana at Ephesus that they were temple sweepers or they were keepers of sacred things. It was a town that was celebrated of its, of its, of its, of its education and its philosophy and among this was a Temple, another temple, if you please, to Asclepius, who was the god of medicine. In that place, in that place, they said that healing could happen at this temple to this pagan god. Priests would use uh, would, would use drugs that would cause people hallucinogens that would cause people to go into sleep, and then they would take live snakes. And let them crawl over their bodies as healing. <laughs> no thanks is right. And when you walked into that temple front and center, it is a snake, a live snake that they worship. Mm. But they really believed that this was going to heal them and they would worship. Here they would worship in the form of, of a living serpent. Amen. As they have uncovered coins that show this insignia of a serpent. And, and, and it shows us how that they had the idea that we know how to heal. We know what is best. Can I tell you the battle facing this church is very similar to the battle facing America. Who will we worship? Who will we worship? Quite frankly, there are some people today that I think they worship the government. The government is their source for everything. The government, they turn to the government to help them in any situation and everything that they can, and, they, and it takes on a mentality that says, I worship the government. And the government... I'm going to tell you right now, it's a bad religion. What are we going to worship today? The modern day Zeus of this hour is the, not a god of, of a stone, not a god of a wood, not a god of, of granite, not a, not a throne of granite, but it is the god of self. Self is now Zeus. Because self has become king of kings and lord of lords. My idea, what I want is, 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 is wrapped up in myself. And then we find education. Where many universities these days have become nothing more than pagan temples. Pleasure 
has become the pursuit. Happiness has become the pursuit until we worship happiness. We, we try our best to, to do things that's going to make us happy. What we see in a lot of the alphabet soup today is people pursuing happiness that they can never find, that they'll never get a hold of, and they wonder what they're going to do is because they're worshiping at the God of pleasure because these other gods didn't help them. They went to a church and they didn't feel anything. They went to another church and there was no move of God. They went to a church and there was no truth preached. This early church was not persecuted because they were Christians at the first. They were persecuted because they believed that Jesus was the only way. You can believe that you're a Christian, they said. You can be a Christian, but accept these other gods. Accept these other gods and hold on to them as well. And don't, 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 don't say that Jesus is the only way. I want to tell you today, the world is not upset that you're a Christian. They're not even upset that you're apostolic. But what the world does not want coming out of your mouth is there is only one Lord. There is only one faith. There is only one baptism. There is only one way to get to heaven. Amen. There's only one name that brings salvation. Amen. The church of Pergamon faced this test. What should I do? Do I buy that? I go to the market. Is this offered to Zeus or is this not? Do I wear that? Is this offered to that goddess or this goddess? Y'all didn't know the pastor's going to come in and start meddling on holiness right in the middle of Pergamon lesson, did you? But I'm going to tell you what, there's some devils that come out of the fashion industry that doesn't really care about you representing God correctly. I believe today you need to be careful about whether you're buying something and wearing something that's been offered to an idol, an idol of flesh, an idol of lust. Pergamon. All right, do I buy this? Do I accept this? Uh, uh, is, is Another thing is, do I go to college? I believe that's an honest answer, an honest question that we need to be asking in this generation. Do I really need to go to college? It doesn't take very much to see the, the track record of a lot of people is not good when it comes to going to college and staying saved. Why? They have gone to a pagan temple, a secular temple that has a lot of a lot of good a lot of good could come out of college. Please understand I'm not saying you shouldn't go, but I think that before you go, there ought to be a a a, a course, there ought to be something that just press, presses in your heart the truth so you can identify a lie and you can identify what is wrong and deal with it because there are those today and and I've talked to our kids that are going to these universities and there are those today that they are facing full brunt, anti-Christ, anti-God, teaching full, full in your face. And if you believe that, then you are reared, you're an outcast, you're strange. That's exactly what they were saying to Pergamon. And they were saying, if you're not coming to this temple, then why, why not? If you're not going to that temple, then why not? And you need to be here. You need to understand this. And all this God stuff is not real. All this Bible stuff is not real. All this stuff is not real so should our kids go to college or not 
I think, parents, that's an honest question you ought to ask. And I'll reiterate. I'll reiterate. This is my opinion. I'm stepping out of, of just simply preaching. This is my opinion. And I feel like that I, I, I should express it. If you're going to have your children go to college, they need to either go somewhere where they're living with somebody that's apostolic or they need to stay home, travel, or do it online. Amen. I, I, I'm not talking about isolation. I am talking about this is a, an attack from hell. It is from the depths of hell to influence our world today that there is no such thing as morality. There is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as God. Amen. We are living in Pergamum. It's interesting what is said about Pergamum. Jesus said, I know where you live. <laughs> this is not new to him. This culture we're in has not, has not changed him or scared him. And he said this, and I know where Satan's seed is. I know where you are, and I know that you're at Satan's seat. Satan will try to find a throne in any arena of life. But he works extra hard in politics, in religion, and in education. He works extra hard in politics, in religion, and education. And I guess those are three things besides in-laws that you probably shouldn't talk about. Today... I believe Satan is working hard to establish himself as the authority voice in our nation. And he is spewing his stuff from the buildings of government, the halls of academia, and behind dead pulpits. This is the church that Jesus is writing to. And this is what he said in verse 12. To the angel, the church of Pergamos, write these things, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Jesus is not playing games with this statement, y'all. Jesus is not patty-caking with their issues. He's not petting them on the back and saying, yeah, it's going to be all right. If you want to believe that, that's okay. You know, you're all right. You're right. You know I love you. Love who you want to love. No, he, he is saying, I am the one that's got the sharp sword with two edges. A sharp sword was a symbol of absolute authority. A double-edged sword was the symbol of absolute authority. What are you saying? Oh, city of authority, I have the sword. Oh, city of temples, I have the sword. Oh, city of power, I have the sword. Satan in your seat, you're sitting on your throne. I want to tell you, I want to remind you, I have the power. Amen. Rome, you are not the official authority. I am. Washington, you are not the official authority. Jesus is. 
Indianapolis, you are not the official authority. Jesus is. Town Hall, you are not the official authority. Let me just say that there is, if there is any authority in this world that is operating, it is on loan from the one that has all power. Only to do his bidding. Amen. And we are to honor and respect that. But I want to tell you, when the, when the rubber meets the road, he's the one with the sword in his hand. He's the one that has the authority. Jesus had already revealed to John when, he, when John turned around and saw him in Revelation 1 and 16. And he said he had in his hand, in his right hand, seven stars. And out of his mouth went a two-edged, went a sword, two-edged sword, a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun in his strength. Amen. He already saw him as the one that had a sword coming out of his mouth. Hebrews tells us what that sword is. In Hebrews 4 and 12, for the word word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even and divided asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you know why the world is fighting the Bible so much? Get the Bible out of the school. Get the Bible out of the university. Get the Bible out of churches. Get the Bible out. Get this passage out. Throw away Romans 1. Throw away Leviticus. Throw away these kinds of things. Why? Because the enemy knows that the weapon that comes against him is the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. The one who has the sword has the power to destroy supposition and assumptions that are based on counterfeit authority from Satan and false religion. He has the one that can destroy that. The sword. Do you know why these folks today that are so wrapped up in Antichrist spirit scream and holler and cuss when they're faced with a question of their belief? You know why? Because they can't face word. They can't face word. Can I tell you what you do when you face the enemy of your soul? You shoot the word at him. You let the, let the power of God begin to fall because Jesus is, is, is both warrior and weapon. Jesus is both king and sword. Jesus is, is in scripture the true prophet that has to do with knowledge, that has to do with education. Jesus is the faithful priest that has to do with worship. Amen. And Jesus is the only king and that has to do with government. So when it comes to these issues that Pergamon is having, amen, he's the true prophet, he's the faithful priest, and he's the only king. He's got the sword in his hand. So how, what do we do? We speak the word. We speak the word. We speak the name. And we worship the king. Hallelujah. Can you do that right now? Just lift up your voice and worship the king. King of kings and Lord of lords, we worship you today. Oh God, help us today. Jesus made some further observations about Pergamum. And he said in verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. I know thy works and I know where you live. Years ago, my dad and mom and our family, I was still at home. My dad had a transition in his ministry. 
And it was one of those transitions that he didn't know where he was going. He just knew he was finished where he was at. And where we were at was in Pennsylvania. And where we wound up is in Texas. And he still didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. And he was in a service in a prayer meeting one night, and he said he was praying about it, and he, he said he was praying all this kind of, Lord, what do we do? Where do we go? What do, what do you want? And he said the Lord spoke to him and said, I know your address. We didn't have an address. We didn't know where we are going to be living, but God knew. God knows where you're at. I said, God knows. Somebody ought to thank the Lord. He knows where I am. When I can't feel him like Job and I can't see him, he knows the way that I take. Lord, I praise you today. He said, I know where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. One thing that we want to, I want to stress to you tonight is that Jesus can have a church on fire even where Satan is sitting. Jesus can have a church on fire even where Satan is. And, and, and for those of you, we enjoy quite liberty in our community. We enjoy great peace in our community on a lot of fronts. But you go to some of these cities like Chicago and New York, and you go to some of these cities like Washington, D.C., the spiritual warfare that is going on there is immense. It's heavy pressure. But he said, I'll have a church where Satan's seat is. Oh, thank the Lord. He said, I know your works. I, I, I know the truth about you. I know what you're doing. And then he said, I know where Satan's seat is. That, that Greek word there means throne. I know where Satan's throne is, but it's a counterfeit throne. It's a counterfeit authority. It's a counterfeit rule. It's a counterfeit dominion. It is a kingdom of darkness. It is a hostile government to the kingdom of God. He said, I know where Satan's seat is. I know where he set up shop. He set up shop in the political arena and in the religious arena and the area of education. He said, but here's what I want to tell you. Thank you. I want to commend you. You have hold fast my name. You have held on to my name. Amen. I believe in the name of Jesus. How about you? You've, hold, you've held on to truth, Pergamum. You've held on to truth in an antichrist culture. You've held on to my name. And then he said, and you have not denied my faith. Notice that. It's my name and my faith. Woo! Hallelujah. Not, 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 not Tim's name. Not Tim's faith. He said, but my name and my faith. I believe what he's saying right here is that you better make sure your faith is attached to me. You better make sure that your faith is not just in your flesh and in self, but hold on to my name and don't deny my faith. Amen. Can you praise the Lord for the name? Can you praise the Lord for his faith? Then Jesus moves to the problem. He's given the proclamation of who he was. The one with a sharp two-edged sword. Then he says, and again, can you imagine the pastor of the church reading this letter to you? But I have a few things against you. I have a few things against 
This isn't prophet so-and-so showing up. This isn't some evangelist just showing up and sharing a word that cuts you a little bit. This is Jesus talking. And he says, I know who you are. I know who you are. I know what you're doing. And oh, by the way, I have a few things against you. Because thou hast there them, you got some people that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed in the idols, and to commit fornication. So also you have them among you that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. You have those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. I want you to know what you got to do is repent. Somebody say repent. The doctrine of Balaam speaks of any type of false prophet or corrupt teaching that leads God's people to disobedience. Let me say it again. Balaam is a type of false prophets and corrupt teachers that lead God's people to disobedience. Let me have your attention. Be careful what preacher that even calls himself apostolic is saying online. Or he is being very popular and, and has a great cult following. You've got to be careful because personality can take over prophetic. It becomes then about the person and not about him. You have to be careful because not everybody that has the moniker of a Christian is preaching truth. It's preaching truth. Hallelujah. Praise God. And he said, there are some among you, Pergamum, that has got the doctrine of Balaam. Balak, the king of Moab, in the Old Testament, in Numbers 23, hired the false prophet Balaam to come and cast a spell and a curse on Israel. And each time, you remember the story, Balaam tried to curse Israel. God blessed him. Somebody say, that's just like our God. The enemy comes to curse and God blesses. All right? Israel's obedience to God denied access of the curse to them. I'm rubber, your glue, anything you say to me bounces off of me and sticks on you. That, that, that's the, the truth in the nutshell. So Balaam said, how shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? How shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? Oh, he's getting to some place. So Balaam counseled with King Balak, and he said, Israel cannot be cursed unless they disobey their God. So here's what you do. Send your women to infiltrate Israel's camp and bring their idols with them and a meal and have them seduce the men of Israel and their disobedience will automatically bring a curse. Balaam combined the sin of sexual perversion and idolatry as a stumbling block for God's people. So evidently there was somebody in the church preaching Balaam doctrine. Oh, immorality and sexual immorality is okay. It's okay. That's fine. Sleep together before you're married. No problem whatsoever. Come on. We'll have you, have you singing in the choir and shouting and hooping and teaching Bible study. That's the doctrine of Balaam. 
Sexual immorality was the sin of Rome and is the sin of the day. Amen. Let me share with you the paraphrase of a Roman statesman, Cicero, that is cited by a historian, Barclay. This Roman statesman said this, and I use that word statesman casually. He said, quote, If there is anyone who thinks that young men should not be allowed the love of many women, he is extremely severe. I am not able to deny the principle he stands on, but he contradicts not only with the freedom of our age and what it allows, but also the customs and the allowance of our ancestors. When indeed, was not this not done? When did anyone find fault with this? When was such permission denied? When was it that, that, that what is now allowed was not allowed? Unquote. What is he saying? He said, we've been doing this for years. Where did anybody get this custom? And if you got this custom, he says the word severe. You're severe. I'm going to add severely weird. If, if, you, you know, if you don't do like the world says you ought to do and you accept everything and everyone and every, I, I, please understand what I'm about to say. I realize that young folks get in trouble. They can sleep together out of wedlock and little babies are, are born. This is my belief. I don't believe in illegitimate children. I believe in illegitimate parents. And so they're illegitimate parents and they, they have children and now it's as if nothing is different from whether those two are married or not married. There's no treatment of being different. And I believe you ought to be kind. I believe you ought to be nice. Take care of that baby. Love that baby. Embrace that baby. But oh to God, there would be some conviction that would fall on this generation that realize that's not God's plan. That's not scripture. Amen. To have a moniker of conviction, a moniker of shame. Amen. But our world says we, we've been doing this for years. There's no custom like this. Yes, there is. There's a holy word of God that says culture, I don't care what you say. Culture, I don't care what you say. Hollywood, I don't care what you say. University, I don't care what you say. Because there's one that's got a sword. And it's sharper than your mess. So you have a whole... You study the Roman Empire, y'all. It makes some of our stuff today very tame. Rome was messed up in deep perversion. The Bible calls perversion confusion. A perversion is diverting from the true intent or purpose to change something from what it was intended to be to something worse. Culture says perversion is normal. That's exactly what Pergamon was doing under the authority of Satan, telling the church, this is okay, this is normal. Eat this, drink this, wear this, do this, it's okay. It's simply fine, amen. But I want to tell you, that doctrine of Balaam has got to get out. It's got to get out. It's got to get out. And closely associated was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Jesus praised the church at Ephesus for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now he condemns some of the church at Pergamon for embracing this damnable doctrine. 
There's not much that we really know about the Nicolaitans and what they truly mean and what they believed. But other than this, when you look at what the word means, it means a proud authority, a hierarchy of separatism, division, rebellion. The Nicolaitans were a sect in the early years of Christendom, the church at Rome. You can look it up in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. Some associate this with Nicholas, one of the seven original deacons. One man said that Nicolaitans believed that committing adultery, committing fornication, and other acts were not sin. They were known as the free love. But it was nothing more than Old Testament idolatry. They were going to church and still practicing pagan practices of immorality and perversion. And the Lord said, you're tolerating this, Pergamum. You're tolerating this. And here is his reply. Here is his call. Repent. Somebody say repent. He said, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He is saying, I will turn the word on you and use it against you if you don't come out. The same word that he will destroy the enemy will come against the people of God if they continue to follow the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Amen. But how do we do? We go to war and we say we repent, oh God. Amen. Compromise. Dealing with compromise is not complicated. It's repentance that causes us to walk away from compromise. Oh, would to God the church of this hour would rise up and say I embrace truth. I embrace the word. I I embrace holiness. I embrace living right. I embrace good ethics. I embrace being a good neighbor. I embrace a good tongue. I embrace the word of God. This is no time to compromise truth. If it's in this book, If it's here, I only have one option that'll get me to heaven. Believe and obey. Believe and obey. Somebody say, believe and obey. Otherwise, this word that liberates me will be the same word that condemns me. This word that sets me free will be the same word that causes me to be corrected. Oh, this word. Can I tell you, it, it, it has bothered me through the years of pastoring when I know God's given me a word, sometimes out of knowledge and sometimes just out of revelation, and I knew that it was, it was specifically reaching for some people, and they just, and walk on out the door. I want to tell you, that grieves a pastor. But it doesn't just grieve a pastor, it grieves the master. 
Amen. Because what he wants, he said, if you love me, you will do my commandments. If you love me, you would do my... I'm not talking about, you know, if you, if you, if you don't stand on your head and stack greasy BBs, you're not going to make it to heaven. I'm not talking about some kind of man-made doctrine or some kind of man-made standard. I'm talking about word. I'm talking about what does the word say? What does the word say? Hey, man, if I don't obey this word, I'm going to stand before the one with the two-edged sword, and I'm going to hear the word then. The solution for Pergamon's problem is the revelation of Jesus Christ as being the one true sharp two-edged sword who has the final authority, who is the source of truth. There is no, cho no choice here. Either embrace the biblical-based view of the world and of culture. Either embrace a biblical-based worldview of the world and culture or you will embrace the worldview of the beast. In my opinion, I do not set myself as a, as a scholar of revelation, but I, the more I study and the more I see in the hour that we're living in, I believe the mark of the beast is the mindset of the Antichrist. Believe like we believe. Accept us for who we are. Not just, okay, you, you want to do that? Go on and live your life and be what you want to be? That's fine. But no, it's you accept us for who we are, you have not only got to accept us, you've got to embrace us and champion us. Do you not see that today? I believe that is a mentality of the Antichrist and of the beast. Let me, let, let me read to you from Revelation 16 and 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the, the seat of the beast and his kingdom. Somebody say false authority. <clears throat> Counterfeit authority. The seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. They were so engrossed in the world and its thinking, in the, in the idea of the beast, in the teaching of the beast, in living their life to please themselves until they had a chance to repent, but they did not repent of their, their deeds." The same word the world thinks is weird is the same word they detest. Amen. It will be the same word that judges them. I, I, that's not me just saying that. It's in Revelation 19. Notice what happens. Amen. We're coming down towards the conclusion of redemption and the finality of the story. And in Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he did ju both doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white Horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth, notice what goes out of his mouth here, is a sharp sword. And that with it he should smite the nations. The very word 
that they rebelled against and detest will be the word of judgment. So the word is what I've got to accept now. While mercy is here, while grace is here, I want to embrace this word. I want to run from compromise. I want to run from this carnal culture of our day. And I want to embrace the word. He goes on to say, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The symbolism here is incredible. The symbol here is beautiful. I think sometimes we get lost in, in the symbolism that we forget the practicality that he's Lord of Lord. He's King of Kings. I'm sorry, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, you're not Lord. You're not King. I'm sorry, Satan sitting in your seat thinking that you've got the authority. Aren't you dumb? I'm sorry, all the religions of the world that reject him. I'm sorry. You know, I know this is not necessarily a message that everybody just, woo, that's good. Isn't that fluffy? This is not a fluffy message, but it's a truth message. There's one way, and I didn't pick it. He chose it. Then he gives to them a promise. In every church, there is a proclamation, a revelation of who Jesus is. There is a diagnose of a problem, and then there is a giving of a promise. Aren't you thankful of the promise? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Do you see that, that Pergamon is coming from a culture of identity in crisis? They don't know what God to worship. They don't know who they are. Amen. And so the Lord says, I'll tell you who you are if you'll overcome. If you'll get rid of that spirit of compromise, I'll tell you what is going to happen. If you will reject that, you're going to eat, he said, first of all, of the hidden manna. Amen. One Bible scholar writes it like this. The word for hidden in the Greek is an article, perfect partic uh, particle, indicating a manna that was hidden sometime in the past. But its benefits are available at the time of John's writing. Could it be? Could it be? I'm going to just throw this out there. Could it be that the hint of manna is referring to the pot of manna that is symbolizing that God hid, amen, in the time of Israel? The hidden manna was the blessing that did not decay. The manna that landed in their yard decayed, but the manna in the ark did not decay. There is a word that's as good for you now as it will be for you tomorrow. It was good for your mom and dad. It was good for your grandma and grandpa. And it's good for you today. Let me tell you, young generation, everything that those before you have used is for you when it comes to the word. It's the hidden manna. Pergamon, if you overcome false doctrine, if you refuse to compromise and you reject Satan's authority, i got bread from heaven for you. I've got hidden manna for you. Then he says another promise, I have a white stone and a new name. 
Could somebody praise the Lord right now? A white stone. I've heard that it is almost impossible because of its rarity to find an absolutely pure white stone. Most have some kind of blemish in them. But he said, there is no blemish in you. If you'll overcome, there is no blemish in you. Hallelujah. God's people are always counterculture to this world. The desire of the pagan world today is to be recognized, to identify with what they feel and what they think. But when it comes to the overcoming believer, he knows my name. He has my identity in his hand. My true identity is not based on what I feel. It's not based on what I think. It's not based on what others say about me. It's not based on the world that I'm living in. But my true identity is based on what he says because he said, I got your name right here. I know your name right here. Hallelujah. And he said, it is a new name that the world doesn't have a clue about. The world does not understand your position of truth. The world may not understand you, but when you know I am who I am because he says who I am. My name, amen, is in him. He chooses my identity. Doesn't matter if I'm recognized by culture and politics and religion and education. He knows me. My identity is in him. Identity in our life comes by two ways. First of all, our identity comes by creation. Creation. He made a male and female. But when sin entered in, then you got parents that are messed up who are telling their kids all kind of junk. Then you got a culture that's messed up. And so it is impossible to get a true picture of what your real identity is just simply from creation. But there's another thing that we get our identity from, and it's called recreation. It's called the new birth. <laughs> and in that, my father's perfect. And in that, uh, I am made new, not just made new. He, you know, the Bible speaks about that he'll give us a new heart, not just fix our heart. He'll give us a new heart. And if he gave you a new heart, stop complaining about what you used to do with your old heart because you don't have that heart anymore. Amen. Let that heart be of, of Christ. Well, it's just me. It's just my nature. Well, did you really get a new heart? A new heart puts on a new identity. I am who I am in Christ. Can you stand to your feet right now and begin to praise Him for your identity? Thank you for listening to the MPC Podcast. We trust that today's message has inspired you, encouraged you, and strengthened you in the Lord. We would like to invite you to join us again by simply subscribing to our podcast, and we encourage you to write a review if it has been a blessing to you. Again, you can find us at medorachurch.com to learn more about our ministry.